This podcast, number 826, with Greg Trinish, the founder of Adventure and Scientist for Conservation, is brought to you by Randy Faulkner, the author of a new book entitled Think and Grow Through Art and Music. Randy has done a masterful job in this book of combining the principles of Napoleon Hill think and grow rich into think and grow through art and music including fascinating stories about musicians who utilize hills principles to attain success if you're interested in taking your music career to a new level and be inspired by the stories and principles of napoleon hill then you're going to want to listen to the podcast number 817 with randy faulkner about his new book think and grow through art and music if you want to learn more about Randy Faulkner and his new book, please visit his website at www.thinkartandmusic.com. That's thinkartandmusic.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Greg Trinish, the executive director of a nonprofit called Adventure and Scientists for Conservation. Enjoy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Greg, as I do all the time, I just have to thank the people that keep coming back and listening to the show, the thousands of people from around the world who've, you know, just liked us and continue to come back. Um, we're working on almost podcast 850, 13 years doing this now um, with authors and thought leaders from all over the place. And as an introduction to this, I'd like to kind of set this up for the listeners. Um, Bo Parfait, who wrote a book called Die Trying, One Man's Quest to Conquer the Seven Summits, who was on the show quite some time ago, but became a very close personal friend of mine, introduced me to Greg. And then when I went to the website, um, I was more and more intrigued by what uh, Greg is doing. And today he's joining us from Bozeman, Montana. Uh, Greg is the executive director of Adventure Scientists, and it's Greg Tarnish. Is that right? Am I saying it right? Tarnish. Tarnish. Okay. And he has been running this organization for quite some time. And I just wanted to share with our listeners some of the unique ways now that we're doing some podcasts and exposing uh, our listening audience to some of the things that we think um, they would be interested in, and this is one of them. Um, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you, Greg. Um, Greg has founded Adventure Scientists in 2011 with a strong passion for both science, discovery, and exploration. Uh, National Geographic named Greg an Adventure of the Year in 2008 when he and a friend completed a 7,800-mile trek along the spine of the Andes mountain range. He was also included on the Christian Science Monitor's 30 Under 30 list in 2012, and the following year became National Geographic's Emerging Explorer for his work with Adventure Scientists. In 2013, he was named the Backpacker Magazine Hero. In 2015, a Draper Rippers Kaplan uh, entrepreneur and one of Men's Journal's 50 Most Adventurous Men. And in 2017, he was named Akasha. Is that how you say that? Akasha. I say Akosha Akasha. Fellow. And in 2018, one of the Grist 50 Fixers, uh, Greg was named the Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum. 
He holds a biology degree from Montana State University and a sociology degree from UC Boulder. And he has done a thorough hiking of the Appalachian Trail in 2004. Well, Greg, it's a pleasure having you on the show. And now our listeners know just a tad bit about you as a person. And uh, last night I was watching, it's kind of brought it up for me, National Geographic as these three guys were attempting to walk the length of the Grand Canyon. And I thought that that was a pretty interesting uh, documentary, actually, because you can imagine them trying to walk the length going up and down and up and down just to try and walk the length of that, which was 785 miles. It would have only been 285 miles if they were able to do it straight, uh, but it added another 500 miles to the track. Um, you know, I, I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about your nonprofit, why you were so compelled uh, so many years ago to do this kind of work, and the and the and who benefits really from the work that adventure scientists is doing. Yeah. Uh, that's a great documentary. A friend of mine, Pete McBride, was who you were watching. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was. It it's it's a it was really wonderful. I enjoyed the whole thing. Those guys at, at the first start of it, Greg. Uh, you look at their feet, and they they just could hardly make it. And they stopped the track, and they started again. <laughs> so I only fun of Pete's feet too much. He beat me at. Uh, at a racquetball one time, so I can't, I can't complain. Um, but anyway, um, the organization I started because as I was exploring around the world, I felt this deep longing to do more than just explore. To be out there and exploring was really fun, uh, but it was self-fulfilling. And since I was a little kid, um, exposed to different um, cultures around the world and, and had the opportunity to travel to South Africa when I was a teenager. And, and I just, I really felt drawn to service. I really felt like my time on this planet should be about more than just the selfish pursuit of exploration. And so uh, I started sharing that feeling with others and quickly came to understand that it was pretty common that people wished there was some way that they could give back while they explore, while they do what they love and be outside. And so after uh, pondering that for a while, I came up with this concept of adventure scientists to send volunteers out and, and realized that while I was working as a field biologist, I could have so much impact. But if we could organize and mobilize people to work together and work on common mission, then we could really have some profound impact for these massive challenges we face. And as far as who benefits, you know, we really serve the scientists at the forefront of their fields uh, who are working to solve environmental and human health issues. And so we ultimately benefit. The entire population of the planet benefits because our scientific partners are working on everything from antibiotic resistance, which will kill 50 million people a year by the year 2050 if left unchecked. That's 3 million more people who die of cancer every year. Uh, we will, we're working on things like illegal timber harvest, and which is the leading cause of deforestation. Uh, up to 15% of greenhouse gas emissions or climate change is attributable to deforestation. We're working on these massive issues where data is a limiting factor, where there's a clear and tangible pathway from data collection to an outcome, to something being different and lasting change in the world, and where there's a clear need for the outdoor community. 
those three things really equal the formula for what's a great project for well you have such diversity you know and we're in a world today where um i'm going to say unfortunately we have an administration who is not really paying as much attention to the environment um i also know people that work at the epa and the challenges the epa has had over this last four years of just trying to get things done um, switches in uh, the leadership at the EPA and the, and the rest of the thing. And I know that most of my listeners, probably 99% of them are uh, environmentally friendly because that's the kind of audience I attract. These are the kind of people that are um, all recycling. They're all doing the kind of things that they need to do to make the world hopefully a better place. In your estimation, given the current state of affairs with the amount of flooding we're seeing, climate change, which is probably the biggest element uh, that we face, um, CO2 emissions, the rise in CO2 emissions. Um, we had a, uh, and I mentioned this to you on our first call, um, we had a scientist on here uh, from who did a, wrote a book called The Green New Deal. Um, in your estimation, the work that you're doing in conjunction with this, um, what what is our trajectory? Not, I'm not asking you to be a prognosticator, but from what you're seeing in the field work that you're doing, what is it that needs to happen in your estimation? Because you're at the ground level. I mean, you're actually out in the forest going through this. You're doing all of these things. And most of my listeners don't get that upfront and close. Right? Let's face it, a very small percentage of anybody who listens to this podcast is going to actually go out and do data collection for you. Um, but they need to understand the perils that we're faced with. And they hear it all the time, but they don't hear it from people like you. They hear it from politicians. Um, you know, they, they probably hear it maybe from some scientists. So let's get it down and dirty and hear it from the guy who sees it. Yeah. Um, I remain optimistic, uh, and I do that because of the, the scientists that we partner with. I mean, these are my heroes. These are people who are coming up with brilliant, brilliant ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change and mitigate the impacts of microplastics in our oceans and mitigate the impacts of these massive uh, issues that we're facing. Things like coronavirus is a great example. This is not... Uh, just some passive uh, occurrence. This is because we have encroached upon and infringed upon nature. And I think people really need to draw those connections and realize that the storms that we're seeing, the fires that we're seeing across the West. And you know, it's funny, we, I've looked at, there, there's this great map that you can look at online. Just Google world fire map. You can look at, at, current fires happening around the world. And, and we hear so much about what's happening in the United States and it's horrible and people are losing their homes. And, and yet you look at places like the Amazon and places like the Congo basin. And when you see this map, it's incredible because it is just lit up across those areas in a way that it, it's just mind boggling that all of those could possibly be fires. Those are real effects of climate change. It's happening here. It's happening on every single continent on this planet. And that is going to have effects on us. Everything from pandemics, which will get worse. Storms will get worse. There will be trillions of dollars of cost as a result of that. Yet, 
these scientists that we get to partner with, and this is the greatest privilege of my life. I get to work with scientists from Harvard Medical School and scientists from all around the world and, and governments and in uh, different countries. It's really incredible um, what they're doing. And ideas like being able to take fungi that we find on the top of Mount Everest and inoculate crops so that you can improve crop yields without the need for synthetic fertilizers. We're going to have 12 billion people on this planet before too long. And the opportunity to feed those 12 billion people simply by using nature-based solutions, this idea that nature has already solved these problems. And if we go out and find these solutions, we're going to be infinitely better off. Uh, you look at uh, even the CRISPR and the ability to manipulate genes now. That comes from nature. That's a nature-based solution. It's incredible. Well, most of the things are, including all of our medicines that are treating people are coming from nature. They're coming from plants. So, you know, and if we continue to uh, challenge that environment by our encrosion on these environments, uh, we're going to be challenged to find those solutions anymore. Uh, because those are, you know, if you look at it, that is our partner is, is, is nature. Um and, you know, you speak about the role of a volunteer, somebody who's basically kind of collects data in the field. Um, what's that like? If somebody wants to go to your website, which we're going to mention here is adventurescientists.org. Uh, is that correct? Yep. Adventurescientists.org. And they go on there and they check it out. Um, what's it like for them to become and what's the probability that somebody listening to the show who clicks the button and fills out your application and wants to do something for you will actually be chosen. Yeah. So we have uh, the experience is you come to the website, you find a project that's in your area that suits your outdoor abilities. And then we do screen volunteers. You apply to participate in these projects. And the reason for that is twofold. One is we want to make sure that the people who are volunteering for us can take care of themselves in the outdoors. Now, some of our projects have been climbing Mount Everest. Some of our projects have been, you know, like this photo behind me, kayaking in the middle of winter uh, to collect plastic samples or water samples that we're looking for plastics in. You don't need to be the top tier athlete to do this. If you can go out on a hike and understand what you're supposed to bring with you, um, that's enough for many of our projects. We have a project for road bikers that's targeted at looking at hot spots for wildlife vehicle collisions. You know, this is crazy, but every single day in the United States, it's estimated that a million animals are killed by vehicles. And in addition to that, there's 26,000 people a year that are killed by wildlife vehicle collisions. And so the opportunity to go out road bike and look for roadkill helps us pinpoint exactly where mitigation is needed uh, for these, where overpasses, underpasses, signage, lower speed limits, all kinds of things can be used to mitigate those impacts. Um, so that's another example of how somebody can come to our website, find a project that suits them, they sign up uh, there. If you're accepted into the program and you ask about probabilities, it's really project specific. We have a wild and scenic rivers project with the federal government where we have 400 people on our wait list right now. And then we have a Montana based cycling project where we need more volunteers. Uh -huh. uh, and so the probabilities do vary by project. So then once you're accepted, you'll go through a training. Uh, this training happens online. Uh, we use all different kinds of 
learning techniques, visual, textual, um, where we use an LMS-based system so we can track how everybody's doing and improve our systems, improve our, our teaching. Uh, you take a quiz at the end of every section and an exam at the end of your course. Uh, then you're certified to go out and collect. Uh, once you're certified and you can go out and collect, you work with our team to figure out exactly what sites you're going to do, um, which sites you're going to own. Some of our projects have repeat visits where you go three or four times a year. Other projects are one-offs. Uh, and then you'll go back out and uh, collect your data. And then our team is going to be here for you to answer any questions you have. They're emailing with you. By the end of a project, you'll almost certainly know several members of our team who have worked with you on your tech and worked with you on the actual protocols to make sure that you're really set up for success. Uh, and then you collect your data and we're communicating with you, the scientist is communicating with you uh, that we're partnered with and making sure that you understand the impact of what you've done. And our commitment to every single volunteer is that if you're going to spend your time with us, as opposed to everything else you could spend your time with, uh, it's going to matter. And we're really vetting our projects to make sure that every single thing you do for adventure scientists moves the needle, that it actually matters and actually contributes to the world being a better place. Well, that gives our listeners an opportunity and that certainly explains your process. Now, you have lots of partners. Uh, you have to have partners to do something like this, whether it's the scientists and the universities, the scientists are connected with. Tell our listeners a little bit about your partnerships, the kind of partners that you might be looking for uh, to expand uh, your nonprofit and your organization. Yeah, so uh, everything that we do, every science project we, we have is originated by a scientist. And so there's got to be somebody who says, these are the data we need to move this issue forward. And so we partnered with uh, big NGOs, we call them BIGOs, big international NGOs, uh, like WRI, the World Resources Institute. Uh, we've done projects with NRDC and uh, even Sierra Club. Uh, and then we've worked with governments. This Wild and Scenic Rivers project I mentioned is a partnership with the BLM Forest Service and Park Service, uh, who manage these waterways. Uh, we're working now to develop a project in Eastern Europe, uh, our timber project. So for this project, volunteers go out across the range of commercially important tree species. So we've done four species so far. We're uh, hoping to do uh, up to seven more next year. Uh, and uh, we're expanding this project now to Eastern Europe. And so you navigate to the tree, you pick a tree core. So we teach you how to use an increment bore. Uh, you're taking a lot of other data while you're there about the height of the tree, the circumference of the tree, all those things. And then uh, we call that diameter request height. And then uh, all of that information goes to our partners at uh, the Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. And we're expanding this project now with the Environmental Investigation Agency. In Eastern Europe. Uh, so the, the partners are... Uh, again, the, the heroes, the partners are the ones that we are amplifying and accelerating their ability to succeed. And when I look at all these problems that we're facing in the world, again, what gives me hope, what gives me optimism is that these scientists are going to come up with solutions that are going to make our species viable for millennia to come. And uh, the, the opportunity to accelerate their impact, the opportunity to help make them successful is what this is all about. 
So, Greg, you've obviously worked on lots of projects since you founded this, and um, you've seen a lot of scientists collect data. You've collected data. What's the one most significant project, if you were to pick one, that you've seen an impact to uh, our environment? Something has happened. It's moved forward and step, as I call it, meaning, hey, you collected the data. The data resulted in the hypothesis being proven. The hypothesis then led to some action. That action was whatever. Um, is there one that you can give us that uh, I know they probably don't all end up this way, uh, but the reality is you're hoping that most of them do. Yeah. Yeah, I can. So um, there's a number of projects. Choosing one is very difficult for me, so I'm going to rattle off a few quick ones here, if that's all right. Um, our microplastics project was something we did for four years. We collected the largest data set on Earth for microplastics. Today, over 250 institutions have used that data set or are using that data set to improve management, to look at maximum contamination limits or upper limits for how much plastic uh, can be in the waterway before mitigation is required. Um, so I'm really proud of that project. It really shows the breadth of what we can do. And you can see that on our website at designforscientist.org slash microplastics. Our timber project slash timber uh, is one where we, again, have gone out across the range of these species, collected the genetic material of these species. And then when a suspected poacher and trees get poached all the time. They are crime syndicates. And I'm talking about extortion and bribery and sometimes kidnapping. These are full-on crime syndicates around the illegal timber trade. Um, when a suspected poacher uh, has material, you can compare the genetics of what they have with what's been standing in the forest and pinpoint the geography of where those trees came from and thereby the legality whether they actually got those trees where they said they did. So that's been used to prosecute timber theft. That's really exciting. Uh, that's, that's an incredible step forward and has uh, advanced the law enforcement's ability to prosecute timber thefts. Really excited about that project. And as I said, we're expanding to other species now to make it possible to move on. Um, and we need support to do that. So that, that's one of the areas where we're currently fundraising right now. Uh, another one is we worked with Harvard Medical School. We were sent out around the globe to collect uh, animal scabs, so poops from animals. And with that, the researchers from Harvard Medical School look at the bacteria in the gut flora of those animals. And they examine those looking specifically for this genus of bacteria called Enterococcus, which is very persistent. It's, it's everywhere. It's in your gut. It's in my gut. It's in every single animal on the planet. It's even been found in some carnivorous plants. And in hospital settings, this is like the linebacker of bacteria. You can't destroy it. And so they're, they're, they have evolved. They have gained these traits to become extremely resistant to, antibi to antibiotic, uh, antibiotics. And so we go out, we find these animal scouts, and we help them narrow the search for the genes that are causing that antibiotic resistance. And this is all aimed at being able to create new interventions. Now, what we learned there is that the diversity, even in a place like the Harvard Forest, is as diverse in the, the bacteria that are there as they are in the far-flung places of the globe. So the way we've advanced the Harvard researchers' work is that he's learned he doesn't need to go the far corners of the globe. So sometimes it's the negative result 
that really pays off and saves years and years of effort for our researcher partners. And then the last one I'll mention is, is one I've already mentioned. We climbed up to 22,000 feet on Mount Everest, collected the highest known plant life on Earth. This was a moss growing up at 22,000 feet. And uh, in that moss, our partner who was at the University of Washington and USGS at the time and currently has a program called Adaptive Symbiotic Technologies, uh, is able to take those fungi that were growing in the moss and allowing the moss to uptake nutrients in this very low nutrient environment. And today, he is inoculating almost 2 million acres a year with these fungi. And he's also, and that includes 600 small farms in India. And he's increasing crop yields up to 100%, if not more. And the, the more marginalized the terrain is, the more drought uh, infected or drought affected uh, area he's using these inoculants in, the better the yields are. It's really incredible. So tremendous results with that. I mean, those are four stories that certainly anybody out here could relate to, you know, the butt gut, the, the, the butt, the, the gut biome uh, is a big one, I'm sure, for the Harvard scientists and to trying to find new antibiotics that aren't, that can be more resistant uh, to that particular issue. And it's fascinating the things you've gotten involved in and especially the collection on top of Mount Everest so that we could increase crop yields. Um, I'm not certain if, uh, uh, maybe you're more optimistic than I am, but you said we're headed toward 12 billion people. And I keep thinking 12 billion people is this little blue uh, marble rolling around out in space going to be able to sustain uh, 12 billion people. And uh, that's a question for all of us to try and figure out. Um, I would hope that we would do something with population growth before we got to that uh, to that level, even though um, I, I think I looked at David Attenborough's uh, recent documentary, which really drew to the conclusion that as a species, um, if we don't take action and we annihilate ourselves, in the end, the rest of the species will again take back over again. Um, and you know, the reality is. I'm hoping we won't annihilate ourselves <laughs> to the degree that there's no human form left here. But you know what? Uh, the good news is, is that at least it would it would continue on. Now, the the listeners out there, Greg, uh, the best way to help you is through donations. They can make donations at the website directly. Again, go to adventurescientist.org. You can look for the donation button on the page. Um, there you can see some videos. You can check out Greg's staff. Uh, you can look at the work that they're doing. I highly encourage you to do that just as an opportunity to get involved with a, a nonprofit organization that's really doing some fantastic work, um, but isn't probably in the main lane as many of these other nonprofits would be. Uh, so that's why I wanted to expose you to our listeners and I'm hoping that uh, many of them will take action. We'll check it, check you out, contact you, uh, and make some donations. Greg, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with our listeners uh, talking about adventure scientists, the projects and initiatives you're working on, and the good work you're doing. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. No problem. Thank you.